1: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12.
0: I want to tell you another story I came across that uh, I thought gets the point across very well. There were four guys that met by chance on a Saturday night in Denver. At the Denver Railway Depot, Hal Stevens, Jack Tournay, John Lewis, and Hal Wilshire—real story—they were newspaper reporters for the Denver Post, the Denver Times, the Republican, and the Rocky Mountain News. Each had been set, uh, sent by their editor uh, to dig up a story, any story. Uh, for the Sunday editions. This was Saturday night. They needed a story for, by the, for tomorrow morning's edition. And so the reporters were in the railroad station, hoping to snag some visiting celebrity or something, uh, uh, Frank Freddy or somebody that was coming through, and uh, that might arrive by train. But none arrived. And so the, the four reporters, you know, competing papers, they happened to met, and they were commiserating, and all were facing an empty-handed return to their city desk. And uh, Al uh, declared that he was going to make up a story and hand it in. Just make up something colorful. The other three laughed at him. That's ridiculous. Someone suggests they all walk over to the Oxford Hotel and have a beer. So they did. Jack said he liked Al's idea about faking a story, but why didn't each of them fake a story and get off the hook? John Jack said, you're thinking too small. Four half-baked fakes didn't really cut it. What they really needed was a real whopper that they all could use. Another round of beers. (laughs) A phony story, of course, uh, could be uh, too easy to check. So they started discussing something foreign, uh, some foreign angles that uh, would be difficult to really verify. China was distant enough. So as you read, yes, we'll write something about China. John leaned forward, gesturing dramatically in the dim light of the bar room, and said, try this one on. A group of American engineers stopping over in Denver en route to China... The Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall. Our engineers are bidding on the job. Harold was skeptical. Why would the Chinese want to destroy the Great Wall? John thought for a moment. They're tearing down the ancient boundary to symbolize international goodwill to welcome foreign trade. Another round of beers. By 11 p.m., the four reporters had worked out the details of their preposterous story. After leaving the Oxford Bar, they'd go over to the Windsor Hotel. They would sign four fictitious names to the hotel register. They'd instruct the desk clerk to tell anyone that asked that four New Yorkers had arrived that evening, had been interviewed by the reporters, and had left early the next morning for California. The Denver newspapers carried the story. All four papers and on the front page. In fact, the Times headline that Sunday read, Great Chinese Wall Doomed, Peking Seeks World Trade. Of course, the story was a phony, a ludicrous fabrication, concocted by four capricious newsmen (laughs) in a hotel bar. But their story was taken seriously and was picked up and expanded by newspapers in the eastern United States, and then by newspapers abroad. Yeah, whoops is right. When the Chinese themselves learned (laughs) that the Americans were sending a demolition crew (laughs) to tear down their national monument, most of them were indignant. Some of them were enraged. Particularly incensed, were members of a secret society, a volatile group of Chinese patriots who were already wary of foreign intervention. They, inspired by the story, exploded. They rampaged against the foreign embassies in Peking. They slaughtered hundreds of missionaries. In two months, 19,000 troops from six countries, joined forces, invaded China with the purpose of protecting their own countrymen. The bloodshed that followed, sparked by the journalistic hoax, hoax, uh, invented in a bar room in Denver, became the white-hot international conflagration that's known to every high school student as the Boxer Rebellion. Um, There's a little background here. It was a band of people called the Ai Ho Chiang, which which means righteous and harmonious fists. They believed a mysterious boxing art rendered them invulnerable. And the group's origin was supposed to have been maybe originally a self-defense organization during the Taiping Rebellion, the White Lotus sect they call themselves. At first these boxers, as the Western media called them the boxers, and so that became known as the Boxer Rebellion. They first addressed their hostility against the Christian converts, who had you know, caused many people to abandon their traditional belief system. And, and so they roamed the countryside killing uh, Chinese Christians and foreign missionaries. And from all this anti-Christianist area, it, it, uh, it, uh, it just started to escalate against everything foreign. Churches, uh, railways, mines, whatever. And uh, they recruited disenchanted from all segments of society. There was, a lot of, there, was a, there was a drought, so many people were starving and hungry, so they were open to this kind of, of uh, a thing. And this is 1899-1900 time period. And local authorities refused to stop the violence at first. The Manchu court was uh, alarmed by the uncontrollable popular uprising. But they took satisfaction at seeing revenge taking, being taken for their humiliation before the foreign powers and there's I won't get through all the politics but the empress and the emperor were at odds and they end up backing they thought she was impressed with the boxers successes so she not just was neutral they actually started backing the boxers and that uh, foreign powers you know got even the whole thing starts to escalate that started a very famous eight week uh, siege on the they came. It, the whole thing obviously got way out of hand and then the, the United States in the act and I won't uh, go through the whole history here but uh, it, uh, finally this German settled down in September of 1901 ultimately ends up humiliating it collapsed the uh, uh, Qing uh, prestige and all that so forth but all this started by what? You know a group of guys in a bar putting together a lie obviously having no concept or what that might ignite. It's interesting to see what David prayed. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not my heart to any evil thing. See, the great tragedies, I don't think any of us have any ability to grasp the evil that a few idle words can cause about a person his reputation someone's marriage the integrity of a church or a business or what have you but David knew that the key to the, to the tongue was the heart Matthew 1234 out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh but anyway verse 6 James continues the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity so is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on Fire of hell. Our tongue potentially has more destructive power than a hydrogen bomb because the bomb's power is only physical and temporal. Your tongue's power potentially is spiritual and eternal. Your proper use of your tongue in the right situation, can alter someone's eternity. Hydrogen bomb can't do that. In fact, the tongue controls the bomb, if you want to get argue about it. But anyway, you know, it's amazing within any organization, especially a church or a ministry, when certain people leave or are replaced, what a beautiful spirit of harmony and love takes over from what previously was tense and divisive. It's amazing. Uh, the The scripture says that in Proverbs 26. Where no wood is, the fire goeth out. So, where there is no tail bearer, the strife ceaseth, ceaseth. I think we've all been in organizations. How many you know, of you? Show hands. How many of you have been in an organization where there's been uh, a, a turbulence or a problem? Well, yeah, okay, see, so yeah, it's almost unanimous. <laughs> where that one person leaves or moves away or whatever. Suddenly, everybody gets along. The tongue can cause disasters from sin on the inside or pressures from the outside. It's interesting that if we feel abused, let's remember, too, that our Lord was also similarly abused. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the things that he had to bear. One of them was how his enemies talked about him. They called him a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber. When he performed miracles, they attributed those miracles to Satan. Even when he's hanging on the cross, his enemies, threw vicious taunts at him. He even records that in Psalm 22. It's one of the things in there that's interesting. He, he, he describes what they're saying. verbatim, actually. Anyway, verse 7. For every... Now, he, now, now James introduces another model. He talked about fires up till now. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things of the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind... But the tongue can no man tame. Everyone that's married knows that. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. No man can tame his own heart. How do you tame your heart? Turn with me to Isaiah 6. And I think there's a revealing event that occurs in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is a famous passage because it's, when I, it's where Isaiah is treated to a glimpse of the throne room of the universe the throne of God and it describes that in the first few verses but when you get to verse 5 I want you this is always in the scripture where someone is confronted with the throne room of God they always have the same effect they're not excited they're crushed Notice what Isaiah's reaction is then said I woe is me See, in other words, what he's going to be confronted with is the, righteous, the blinding righteousness of God in contrast to our sinfulness. That's the thing that grabbed Isaiah right up front here. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongues from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. His lips were cauterized by the coal from the altar. Interesting. Can we tame our own heart? I don't think so. I think what James is telling us is that only God can. Only God can. He also, in this verse 8, back in James 3, verse 8, it speaks uh, the tongue as, as full of deadly poison. It's interesting, the most deadly of poisons are the poisons that are tasteless and odorless. And I'm going to suggest to you that's analogous to subtle criticism and slander. Verbal venom that does its work when the victim can't react. It can include a word that's unsaid. The awkward silence, a raised eyebrow, a quizzical look, any of those can be sent right from the pit of hell. Tongue can break hearts and ruin reputations. It's interesting that every word... Adolf Hitler wrote a book, Mein Kampf. Every word in Adolf Hitler's book cost 125 lives in World War II. Now contrast the words of Hitler... With the words of Winston Churchill, instead of the fanatical ravings and what have you, Churchill's brilliant but very measured sentences pulled together a faltering nation for its finest hour. The tongue is like an unruly animal, restless and dangerous. It seeks prey and then pounces and kills. Some animals are poisonous, as are some tongues. And the septic things about poisons that can work slowly and visibly... A malicious word that's spread, uncontested, can do great damage to a person, a family, or a church. I guess James's key point here before we go on is that animals can be tamed, but the tongue cannot. You can take animals that weigh tons and train them. You can take a tongue, which is a few ounces, and can't. And obviously the reason you can't is because it's just the amplifier of thoughts that come from the heart. But anyway, James then goes on to two more final ones. The uh, the power of the tongue to delight. And he uses two. The fountain and the tree as his examples here. That gives us six altogether. Verse 9. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place? Sweet water and bitter. Now uh, in most of the world, almost any place you go in the world, even small villages, one of the most prized possessions of most of these settlements is right in the middle of the town is what? a freshwater fountain. Both in its reality and also its symbolism, it represents uh, uh, you know blessing, refreshment, life. Why? Because you and I need water. We can go without food for a while, but you can't go without water for very long. Water is necessary for drinking, also for washing. Cooking, farming, all kinds of activities necessary for life. And uh, Proverbs 18.4, The words of a man's mouth are as deep waters, and the wellspring of wisdom as a flowing brook. Proverbs 10.11, The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. 13.14, The law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. See, water is life-giving, and so our words can give life if they're controlled by the Spirit of God, and not our flesh. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18.21. It's interesting how the floods in the Midwest, we've all seen floods in actual practice or on, on news broadcasts. It's amazing how much uncontrolled water, I mean, how uncontrolled water, how much damage it can do. In contrast, that, of course, is the refreshment of water and the refreshment of the Holy Spirit. Paul's prayer was that he might refresh the saints in Rome when he visited them. He often named Christians who refreshed him. 1 Corinthians 16, 18, and Philemon has a couple of verses that mention that. And water also cleansed. In the tabernacle and the temple, there was a laver that was for the purpose of washing. God's Word is the spiritual water that cleanses us. It's interesting that um, we are washed by Jesus' blood once and for all. That's a judicial cleansing. But the scripture tells us that we should be washed every day. In what? It's a word. It uses a different idiom. The blood is a judicial issue. Washing of the water by the word is a daily affair. Our words to others can cleanse them and sanctify them. If those words that we're using have their source in the Holy Spirit. Our words should be like the river in Ezekiel 47 that brought life to everything it touches. Did I do your words, bring life to everyone it touches? Don't need a show of hands. Proverbs 12, 18, There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Verse 12, Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. See, so he's saying, in effect, he's been drawing an analogy here, in effect, but a tongue is like a tree. What is a tree? A tree can provide beauty, it can provide shade, and also bears fruit. Our words can help someone find shelter and encourage. Proverbs 1021, the lips of the righteous feed many. Jesus said, The words, these words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John 6 63. Now the most important thing about a tree. Is what its root system. It has to be healthy. It has to be deep. See, so you and I need to be like the man in the first Psalm, Book of Psalms. Or it opens Psalm one, very simple, beautiful Psalm. The blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season his leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper there's the secret of prosperity in the first few verses of Psalm 1 and of course nourishment is important it's interesting did the Lord need nourishment Boy, he communed with his father and heard from his father every day he got his marching orders from his father every day Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord hath given me the tongue of the learner, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He awakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. Mark 1, 30, uh, five, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the morning, rising up a great while before the day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. Do you realize that every morning that you don't get up, find some privacy, and have a quiet time with the Lord? You're putting your day in jeopardy. It's so easy to do, and yet, how often do we do it? People say, when should I read my Bible? Question, when are the sheep fed? When do you feed, if you're a shepherd, when do you feed the sheep? In the morning. Morning, best part of the day. If we're going to have tongues of delight, our hearts have to be right with the Lord. Each morning. Now, by the way, James finishes all this with a warning. There's a warning here. A fountain cannot bring forth two kinds of water. A tree cannot yield two kinds of fruit. So this raises a fundamental question that really underlies this whole passage. The question is, what is your most important stewardship? Your wife is nudging you with her elbow the family you might be saying, gee, one of my most important stewardship is to provide for my family, my career, my profession. There's a lot of good lists and you can defend all of them. What is your most important stewardship? What stewardship eclipses every other priority in life? It should be the stewardship of your heart. Your heart. Where's your heart? I can't discern, only God can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, but I can tell where it is by your tongue, unfortunately. Matthew 15, 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. And Proverbs 4.23 says, keep thy heart with all diligence. And I think that's the root truth in James chapter 3, first half of James 3, is that the, all this is symptomatic of the root issue our hearts. And he's talking to Christians not talking to unsaved talking to you and I now one of the writers I consulted and trying to back, get some background here suggested there are 12 words that can transform your life there are 12 words that can transform your life you ready please thank you I'm sorry I love you And I'm praying for you. And we shouldn't be saying that unless we mean it. That's a cliche we use often too frequently, too casually. Twelve words, please. Thank you. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm praying for you. No, I think the secret is our heart. And I think that is not a once and for all thing. You can't come down the sawdust trail and it's done. We all tend to think receiving Jesus Christ is a climax. Not that we shouldn't. That's probably the most important decision of your life. Is to seriously, wholeheartedly commit yourself to Jesus Christ. Very, very important. But it's a beginning, not an end. That's where it all starts. And James is in effect asking throughout his whole epistle. You say you're saved, great. What have you done with it? Where's the evidence? Is there a changed life? Is there obedience? Evidence of obedience. Not perfection. You're going to stumble. Tragically. We all do. And you have to remember the Christian's bar of soap. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's not a license to excuse ourselves from obedience. We are called to obedience. And that obedience is not a works thing as it's often described, it's not a do's and don'ts thing. It's a question of being diligent over our heart and letting our heart reflect in our walk uh, the character of God. When we screw up, when we fumble, when we say something inappropriate, when we pass on a rumor about someone, when we indulge in gossip, that tragedy isn't just because we may injure a life, a family, an enterprise, a mission, a, a, a mission or a church. It's tragic for another reason is that we cloud the perspective of anyone else on the character of God. Because if we're Christians, God is expecting us to reflect God's nature. And that's really what James is going to hammer through all the rest of this. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we come before your throne, thankful for this letter you've given us from James. We pray, Father, that this call to obedience will echo your Holy Spirit, Father, in our lives. Not a set of rules, but a set of responses to the greatness of you, of your nature, of your faithfulness, of your truth. We pray, Father, that you would draw each of us more fully into your word. Help each of us, Father, to be more diligent in our time with you every day. That we might hear your voice that we might know your heart, that our lives and our words would reflect your heart and your words, that we might bear fruit, Father, that we indeed might be fruit-bearing trees, that, we, that our words indeed would comfort, encourage, strengthen, and yes, where appropriate, exhort or convict, not by our self-righteousness, Father, but rather by the leading of your Holy Spirit. As we commit ourselves, Father, this night, into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus
1: Jesus Christ. Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.